Now, uh, this morning we are continuing our sermon series uh, that we've called The Acts of the Risen Christ. And here we are tracing how Jesus continued his work through his people even after he had been risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of his Father. And last week we saw several characteristics of what faithful missions looks like uh, in the life of a local church. And we consider that one of them was being committed to God's word. Uh, Yet the particular passage we looked at did not describe what message God's word proclaims, what message God's word teaches. And so as we look at the continued missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas today, we zero in on the message that all of scripture tells. A message of forgiveness and justification. A message that we all desperately need. Pastor Tony Merida writes this, People will try everything to get rid of the guilt they feel. They'll do anything they can to deal with their unsettled consciences. They try therapy, exercises, diets, medicine, and countless other remedies. And while those things can treat some of the symptoms of the underlying problem, they don't actually treat the problem. They don't actually ultimately heal a person of his or her real problems. And religious people even try sometimes religious solutions like attending church and reading the Bible to fix that guilt. But that only leads to pride or despair. Other times, religious people will even practice self-mutilation, spiritually or physically, humiliating themselves, embarrassing themselves, reminding themselves of all that they've done in order to atone for the sins they've done in the past. Others try to dismiss their guilt by saying, I won't think about that. I won't worry about that, hoping it will all go away. But that won't work either. God has provided only one solution for the problem of our guilt and shame. And that is the basic message that Paul preached from God's word in Acts 13, 13 through 52. And so today, as we look at this passage, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to those who believe including promises to send a king, to send a savior, promises to provide forgiveness and justification. This text is tailored to teach us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to those who believe. And we'll consider that by considering the context, the message, and the reaction of the people. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desperately want to do something with our guilt. We do not want to remain in guilt and shame, and so many of us have tried so many things. And so, Lord, we ask today that your word would move in our hearts so that we would see hope, life, and freedom in Christ from all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our flaws, and see how all that you have done can renew and change us. I ask in particular that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that we would see Jesus and come to love him all the more because of all that he has done for us. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, verse 13. If you're using one of our community Bibles, you can find that on page 921. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Uh, You can uh, look for the big, bold 13, that's a chapter, followed by the small number 13, that's a verse. 
And once you've found it, just take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word. You know what burdens and distractions you came in with this morning. You know where there's areas of guilt and shame. Bring those things to the foot of the cross and ask that Jesus would speak to you this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. All right, look with me at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if any of you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, last week, Paul, Barnabas, and their assistant, John Mark, who we didn't pay much attention to, were doing work on the island of Cyprus, proclaiming God's word. Now, after finishing their work there, the three of them have set sail from that island north to the mainland to an area called Asia Minor, where they uh, come to the port of Perga, And Luke brings our attention very quickly to the work they're doing in Antioch of Pisidia. Now, if you've been with us in the series, this is not the same Antioch that they were sent from. They're not going on mission back to the city they came from. They're going to a new place that's in the region called Pisidia. And that sets up the bulk of our passage for today. They go to a synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia, on the Sabbath day. The scriptures are read, much as we just had the scriptures read, from the law and the prophets. And for a reason that Luke doesn't explain, the leaders of this synagogue ask Paul and Barnabas if they have a word of encouragement for the people. Now before we consider the word of encouragement that Paul offers, I want us to backtrack and just notice the only detail that Luke gives us is what happened in Perga. He tells us uh, that in verse 13, John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now John Stott points out here that in Perga they suffered a setback. Luke announces the fact that John has left them in a matter-of-fact way. He's not assigning blame to anyone. But if we read ahead to chapter 15, it's clear that's not actually what he thinks. He thinks that John has deserted them. He has betrayed them. He's abandoned them. But that's not the end of the story. If you go to Paul's letters in 2 Timothy, he describes his need for Mark to come back to him, saying that Mark has now become useful to him. So although in this chapter very little space is dedicated to this detail, it teaches us a powerful lesson about ministry and mission. But we need to be ready for relational conflict in ministry and mission and in the church, even betrayal and desertion. Yet when we look at the broader context, we need to remember that there is always hope for restoration. So I'd ask you this morning, Are you experiencing relational challenges? Don't lose heart. Has relational conflict led to the brokenness of relation? You don't even have relationship anymore. Don't lose hope. Especially if the Spirit of God is in them. There is hope in Christ that that relationship can be restored. So if you find yourself in a relationship that is broken and seems beyond repair, in hope, go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to do what only he can do, 
change your heart and change their heart so that you might be restored to relationship. And Paul and John Mark's case, he eventually not only restored their relationship, but actually made them partners in the gospel again. A close relationship where they traveled together, did ministry together. And around the specific thing that Paul would have feared, that this brother would just abandon him again. No longer fearing that, they partnered together. Listen, there is hope, even in the greatest places of relational despair, that God can work and restore our relationship. But now back to Paul's basic message, found in verses 16 through 41, uh, that we earlier heard read. Uh, For the sake of time, I'm not going to go read that again, but I'll summarize uh, what we've already heard. The vast majority of Paul's message is around one theme. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to those who believe. That's the basic theme of Paul's sermon. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to those who believe. After standing and getting their attention, he begins encouraging his brothers with a reminder of their history as a people, and specifically drawing attention to how God had initiated and done work with them. Just look with me at all the ways that God has worked through his people. In verse 17, he points out God chose his people not because of their innate goodness, not because of the quality of their spirituality, but while they were slaves, he sought them. Then in verse 17, God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. And in verse 18, God puts up with his people or is patient with them, even as they rebel against him again and again and again. And then in verse 19, despite the rebellion, God gives his people an inheritance. And then in verse 20, God gives them judges until Samuel. Verse 21, God gives them a king. And in verse 22, God removes Saul as king and raises up David as another king. And with the mention of David, Paul does what we try to do, what Charles Spurgeon encourages preachers to do. He makes a beeline for Jesus. Straight from David, he begins to talk about how David's offspring is what eventually led God to bring about a savior for Israel. Through David's offspring, God fulfilled his promises to his people. In other words, God not only fulfilled his promise to Israel by bringing Jesus into the world as he had promised, but more than that, he's used all of Israel's history to do that. God has sovereignly been working through their ups and downs, through slavery, through the wilderness, through kings who are wicked, kings who are faithful but pretty flawed, and a number of other things in order to accomplish his purposes. Ever since God chose Israel, he has been working to bring Jesus into the world as our Savior. But how would this Savior bring salvation? He goes on to explain more uh, of the recent history in verse 24. He points to John the Baptist, whose son, when John was preaching, thought he was the Messiah. But John the Baptist was not the Messiah. His mission was to pave the way for the Messiah, preaching a baptism of repentance. Repentance simply means to change one's way of life or one's mind. And the reason John the Baptist had to preach a baptism of repentance is because the one he was preparing the way for was one he was unworthy to even tie the sandals of. He was preparing the way for a Messiah who was holy and righteous. And despite God's faithfulness to his people, Time and time again, they had rejected God. They had rebelled against God. They had pursued their own selfish ambitions. 
And so John is calling them to repentance. If you're going to be ready for this worthy Messiah, for this holy Messiah, you need to turn from your sinful ways and trust in the Messiah. And so then, beginning in verse 26, Paul begins to explain who this Messiah was and what he had come to do, or what he calls the message of this salvation, or what he'll later call the gospel, the good news. First, he says Jesus was condemned by the Jewish leaders because they didn't understand that the scriptures pointed to Jesus. Yet, ironically, by condemning Jesus to death, they were fulfilling the scriptures they didn't understand. And second, when Jesus was condemned, Paul is clear, there was no guilt found in him. He is a righteous man, a perfect man, an innocent man, yet being sentenced to die. This is what we would call substitutionary atonement. Jesus was a substitute. He did not deserve to die, but died in our place, on our behalf, for us. And it's an atonement. By dying, his blood covers our sin. So that, as we'll see, we could be forgiven and justified. And third, when he was crucified on the cross, he didn't just pass out. He didn't swoon. He really died, and he was buried in a tomb. And then fourth, Three days later, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, showing that death had not defeated this Savior. And then fifth, Jesus appeared to many disciples who are now his witnesses to the people. And then in verse 32, Paul makes it clear that this message is the gospel or the good news. This is the gospel that God had promised to fulfill through the scriptures. And it had been fulfilled when he rose Jesus from the dead. In fact, Paul goes on to cite several different references in the Old Testament in order to prove that all of this was according to God's plan. He cites Psalm 2, Psalm 16, and Isaiah 55 in order to show specific ways that the life, death, and resurrection was all in fulfillment of what God had promised in his word. When John the Baptist paved the way for Jesus, God recognized him as his son, saying, You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In fulfillment of Psalm 2, where he said, This king, you are my son, today I have begotten. And in Psalm 116 and and Isaiah 55, he points out that when Jesus was risen from the dead, he received the holy and sure blessings of David, receiving a glorified body that David didn't receive because he went to corruption. He died and stayed dead, but Jesus didn't. He rose from the dead and will never see corruption again. And so the heart of the gospel message is one that is in fulfillment of all that God has ever spoken in his word. And it's a message that teaches us, that a te- not that a teacher has come to show us how to save ourselves, but rather that a savior has come to die and save us. But before we move on to consider what this salvation entails, I just want us to notice the view of scripture that is contained in Paul's message. In the last century, a debate has been raging over the authority and reliability of Scripture. It probably goes back further than the last century. But uh, recently, one side of the debate is captured by Fuller Seminary, who revised their statement of faith in 1970 to say this. All the books of the Old and New Testaments, given by divine inspiration, are the written word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now that sounds pretty good. All of Scripture is God's Word, only infallible rule of faith and practice. That is good, except when you realize what they took out of their statement of faith, which is this, that the Word of God is free from error 
and whole and apart. In other words, in changing their statement of faith, they moved from saying that all of God's word is true to saying now that the word of God is true on matters of faith and practice, but it's no longer true for what they would call incidental matters of history. So we can trust what God says about the gospel, but if it says something about history, we can't totally be confident. But there are several problems with this view. The first is, the scriptures don't actually neatly divide history from faith and practice. Often, history is used in scripture to teach something about faith and practice. As in the case of the sermon, as Paul is preaching from Israel's history that God is fulfilling his promises in Christ. The second, then, is given how the scriptures actually tie history and faith and practice together, this view puts us in the driver's seat to determine what's true and what's not true. No longer are we in submission to God's word, but rather we're over God's word now evaluating, is this part of scripture true or is that part of scripture true? And we're kind of free to determine what we want for ourselves. But third and most importantly, this is not how the scriptures view themselves. Notice Paul in this passage attributes Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 55, all to things God has said. God's word views itself as God's words through human authors. And, more importantly to the point at hand, the first half of Paul's sermon is a presentation of biblical history from God's word as if it's true. It doesn't divide things. So the view of the Bible regarding itself is that it is God's word through human authors and all that it teaches. This is what Article 2 of our Statement of Faith says we believe. We believe that God's word is the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. I love our statement of faith because it preserves the reality that Scripture is our ultimate authority, but it's careful and nuanced and guarding against these things. So on the one hand, it tells us it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, trusted in all that it promises. In other words, everything the Bible teaches, we believe. Everything it calls us to, we obey. Everything that it is um, inviting us to do and promises, we want to trust, including faith, practice, and history. And yet on the other hand, our statement of faith helpfully says this. God's word is to be believed in all that it teaches. In other words, this recognizes that while we believe everything Scripture teaches, there is room for human interpretation. There's room for us to get wrong what God's word teaches. And for example, the Catholic Church used to teach that the earth was the center of the universe based on the Bible. And the description of the Bible saying the sun rises and the sun sets led them to conclude the earth was the center of the universe. We've come to see that is not true. But that does not mean that the Bible's not true. It means that we misinterpreted. We failed to recognize that that was a metaphor describing our experience of the sun rising and the sun set. And so our statement of faith then recognizes that need for interpretation, to rightly discern the word of truth, to rightly understand what the Bible actually teaches. And so in other words, we want to believe all that Scripture teaches We want to obey all that it commands. We want to believe all that it promises. And yet we have to do the hard work to interpret it faithfully. Also, this doesn't mean that there aren't other good authorities. 
The Bible doesn't teach everything. There are some things that we find only in other places. And so our call there is to treat God's word as the ultimate authority, measuring other authorities if they might have something to teach us against the word of God. Is it faithful? Is it compatible? And if it's not, God's word wins. Further, Paul's point basically is that all of scripture is about Jesus. The whole story of biblical history is pointing forward to what Christ would do. This is why we as a church value being submitted to the scriptures. We aim to search the scriptures to know Jesus and then submit all of our beliefs, values, and practices to him. We want to read the Bible about Jesus. And because God's word is his authority in our life, we then want to live according to it in everything. And because we believe we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, we recognize that we as a church will never arrive. And so we will have to continue to go back to God's word, to resubmit, to renew our commitment to it, to being faithful in all that it teaches, all that it commands, and all that it promises. And so here I would just ask you this morning, do you view the Bible the way the Bible views the Bible? Do you believe and trust God's word and all that it teaches and all that it promises? And when it teaches hard things, Are you tempted to dismiss those teachings as antiquated or unreliable? Or do you fight to submit what you believe to the scriptures, seeking to understand how they're actually for our good and for God's glory? Paul has told us, in keeping with what all the scriptures have said, the good news is that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a death he didn't deserve in our place, and then rose from the dead in fulfillment of God's promise in his word. But what was it that Jesus purchased for us with his life, death, and resurrection? Look with me in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here we see that through this man, through Jesus, we receive forgiveness of sins. And most English translation says that everyone who believes is freed. However, the word translated freed is better translated as justified, declared righteous, credited with the righteousness that Christ earned for us. So as one pastor summarizes, in effect, Paul says, here's the good news of the gospel. You can have forgiveness of sins through Jesus. You can be justified, declared righteous in God's sight through Jesus. We who can't be perfectly obedient to God can be counted righteous through faith in him. We can't earn righteousness. We must receive it. And we can receive justification, which means not only just as if I had never sinned, as you often hear, but also just as if I had always obeyed. When we trust Christ alone, we're given what he earned for us which is not just to bring us to neutral, but for God to actually see us as perfect and righteous as Jesus was. And so the one solution for the problem of guilt I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon is this. We must trust Christ alone. We must trust in the one who bore our curse on the cross, setting us free from condemnation. Jesus says to repentant sinners, you are forgiven. You are free from condemnation. So each person then needs to come to Jesus and be justified from everything that we could not be freed from as we tried to keep the law. 
And so everyone can exchange condemnation for justification and experience peace. Now in a moment, we're going to explore how Paul commands us to respond to this. But for a moment, I just want us to slow down and notice how Paul defines the gospel here. Once again, there's been a debate raging over what the gospel simply defined is. This debate is a little more recent than the last one I mentioned. On the one side of the debate are those who would want to say that the gospel is pure and simply that Jesus is king, or Jesus is Lord. They might affirm that Jesus provides forgiveness, provides redemption, provides justification, salvation, but they would want to say that's not the gospel. That's a benefit of the gospel, but the gospel is only that Jesus is king. And if this seems like semantics, just bear with me for a moment, and I want you to see why this matters. There's a problem with this view. First, the passage that we're looking at says the good news is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and that this man did this for the forgiveness of sins and for our justification. But more practically, if Jesus is just king, that's not necessarily good news. For it to be good news, we need to know what this king intends to do. And this king is entitled to punish us for our rebellion against him. So does this king intend to crush or to save? To condemn or to forgive? And so the good news, the gospel, is that the king who has come is a king who forgives. Indeed, he's a king who represents his people in suffering, who gives himself to die that they might live. That's good news, not the bare statement that Jesus is king. And sadly, the danger at And this way of viewing the gospel as simply Jesus is king is not in what is affirmed and taught. We believe Jesus is king. The danger is what's left out. Now, I know pastors and teachers who would affirm everything we say in our statement of faith, but when they want to define the gospel, they'll say Jesus is just king. Like That's the the gospel bare minimum. But they would still affirm justification by faith alone. I want you to understand by insisting that that's not the gospel, but that Jesus is king is the only gospel, their emphasis inevitably begins to lead people astray. And this is the problem with all false teaching. It starts with something that's true and so overemphasizes it. They begin to minimize other things and sometimes even deny other things. And what happens when you only emphasize Jesus as king? Well, first, it begins to minimize our need for personal salvation. It minimizes our need to be born again. I don't have to respond to the news that Jesus is king. And if all that is preached is Jesus is king, then what about repentance and faith? What about how I get into the kingdom? Inevitably, that's downplayed. And second, when you treat things in this way, you downplay the need for personal conversion, you begin to downplay evangelism as well. And so why do I need to tell other people that Jesus is king? No reason. This is true regardless of what you do. And so it becomes something we don't have to proclaim to others. Third, when you only proclaim Jesus a king and brought his kingdom, but don't answer how you become a part of his kingdom, people will fill in answers to that blank. And their answers will be wrong. Because our natural inclination is to say the way we get into God's kingdom is by living out the ethics of his kingdom, doing the things he commands, trying to earn our way in. We make it about what we do rather than what Christ has done. And so the unspoken answer becomes 
that to be a part of Christ's kingdom and to stay in Christ's kingdom, I must be a good person. Well, that denies what Christ accomplished. It denies grace. And third and finally, this emphasis then pushes a church to be primarily, if not exclusively, focused on social justice, on doing good deeds, on pursuing mercy and justice exclusively, rather than calling people to the mercy they might find in Jesus, their most fundamental need. And this, again, is the problem with most false teaching. It takes a biblical truth. Jesus is king. We believe that. But so emphasizes they minimize and even outright deny other things. And biblical faithfulness requires us to hold all of what the Bible says together, together in tension. And so Northwood, although this text emphasizes the fact that Jesus is a king who provides forgiveness of sins, I I want us to understand the danger someone articulating this different view is attacking. They're attacking the danger of saying that Jesus is only a savior, which is rampant in evangelical churches. Churches that are so focused on saying Jesus is Savior, they deny or minimize the reality that Jesus is a king. And so all they talk about is evangelism. They don't care about obedience. They don't care about mercy and justice for the poor and marginalized. They overlook those things because they have overemphasized the fact Jesus is Savior. But again, that too is an oversimplification. On one hand, Jesus is not just a king. He is a king who saves. On the other hand, Jesus is not just a savior. He is a savior who reigns. And so Northwood, we want to hold these two things together. Jesus is a king who was crowned on a cross as a savior. Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that God's kingdom could be established with and through his people for his glory among the nations as he reconciles them back to himself. How through a substitutionary death on the cross, that we enter into by repentance of our sin and faith in Christ. As Paul labors to show in his message, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God's promise to give a Davidic king. God's promise to give Israel a savior. God's promise to provide forgiveness of sins and justification all to those who believe. And so the question then is, how should we respond? Look with me in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Here we see, you will either choose life or you will choose death. So believe. You will either choose life or you will choose death. So believe that you may have life. So after reminding the people that through Jesus, God has provided forgiveness of sins and justification for everyone who believes, Paul pleads with them. Don't become like the scoffers who reject the gospel and who treat God's work in Christ with contempt, refusing to believe God's work in Christ has been done no matter what people tell them. And why is he so concerned about this? Because it's a matter of life and death. He says to the scoffers, they will be astounded and perish. And so while forgiveness of sins, justification and eternal life and joy await those who believe, those who reject the gospel will perish under God's wrath. The Bible describes this as a place of a fiery furnace. 
the fire never goes out and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. A place that will have weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. This is not what anyone wants to experience. This is a matter of life and death. And you only have two options. Choose life or choose death. And the only way to do that is believe the gospel or reject the gospel. But there's no neutral ground. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to ask you this morning, what do you do with your guilt and shame? Well, how do you deal with your failures, your flaws, your sin? Have you tried to be a better person to make up for what you've done wrong? Have you tried therapy, exercise, diets, or medicine to make yourself feel better? Have you even tried religious performance? Perhaps that's why you're here this morning, coming to church, reading the Bible, praying in order to earn your way back to God. Or maybe you've tried simply minimizing and dismissing the guilt you feel. There's only one solution to your guilt and shame. It's the forgiveness and justification that we find through Jesus Christ. That according to Paul, despite everything you might try to do, you really only have these two options. You can trust Christ, and if you don't, you've rejected him. There's no middle ground. And so I would plead with you this morning, if you have not trusted Christ, trust him. Choose life. Choose hope. Choose joy. Choose forgiveness. Choose justification. He will forgive you. He will give you the righteousness that you could not earn. You do not deserve. But he will credit it to you. And no longer will you be guilty. No longer do you need to experience shame. But instead you will be received as a son and daughter of the living God. Loved. Accepted. I recognize this is a huge decision to make. And so if this is not something you're prepared to do. I invite you, please come talk with me after the service. Consider the cost of not considering this. Hell is a real place. God's judgment is coming. And so if you've not turned to Christ, please take the time to consider who he is and what he's done. We'd love to look at the Gospel of Mark with you and just walk you through it so that you might encounter Jesus for yourself. You could talk with me or one of our members. We would love to tell you more about how you can experience forgiveness of sin, justification, and hope in Christ. And so Paul concludes this sermon focused on how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to those who believe with a call to respond. You will either choose life or you will choose death. And so he urges us, believe so that we might experience life. Now how do the people react? Look with me in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts came to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So how do the people react? Some choose death freely, while those who are appointed to eternal life believe. Some choose death freely, while those who are appointed to eternal life believe. The reaction of those listening is mixed. Initially, there's a positive reaction. They're literally begging for them to speak the word again. And then the next Sabbath, many followed them. And the whole city gathers to hear the word of the Lord. I just want to pause here and notice how positively Scripture is talking about unbelievers here. These people who do not trust Christ yet are eager to hear the word of the Lord. And just because we believe that we are sinful and that our sin affects all of who we are does not mean that we are as bad as we possibly could be. It simply means that it affects every aspect of who we are. But sometimes, unbelievers hunger for God's word more than believers do. Just this week, I was talking with a pastor friend who is describing a ministry to 20s they've developed at a line dancing bar, where they go and engage with these 20s. And as the 20-year-olds hear the gospel and see the gospel lived out in community, they've become attracted to it. And they have started attending their corporate worship services, eager and hungry to hear the word of God. And they have been more consistent in attending than members who believe. Why? Because they recognize their need for it. They recognize they need something. And so this morning, I just ask you, as we look at the hunger of the unbelievers in Acts, do you hunger for God's word in the same way? If you don't, ask the Spirit to do that in you. He would be delighted to make you more hungry for his word. However, this positive reaction is not the only reaction. When the Jews, probably meaning the Jewish leaders, saw the crowds, they become jealous. They begin to contradict Paul and even slander him. Although they were among those who had initially reacted positively, among those saying, hey, come back next week to tell us more. But the following Sabbath, as they see the crowds gather among them, it begins to dawn on these Jewish listeners that the Christian message, although it came through ethnic Israel, is now for the whole world. And that was too much for them to take. I mean, consider how long it takes the apostles to get that. We've seen a couple batches of this not working out that well, and we still have Acts 15 to consider where it's hard again. And so for these Jewish listeners, it was just too much. And so Paul boldly confronts them and says that as a result of their rejecting the gospel, they're now turning the Gentiles because this is what God's plan has always been. He wanted to use his people to be a light to the Gentiles so that he could bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, we see our God is a missionary God who cares for all peoples and longs for his name to be made great among the whole earth. God has always intended to call a people to himself from all nations. And so with that bold confrontation, the Gentiles listening begin to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. 
This message of salvation has come to them. And this message doesn't just stay in the city. It spreads to all the surrounding region. Throughout the whole region, the word of God spread. But those who rejected the message couldn't handle that. And so they stir up further opposition against the political leaders, the women of high influence, to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas flee from the city, shaking the dust off their feet as Jesus had commanded the disciples to do in Luke. And the disciples who are left behind, notice, they're filled with joy. Because of the work of the Spirit in them, despite this persecution, they are still experiencing joy. But what I want us to notice here in this section is the reason why Paul and Luke offer for the gospel being rejected and for the gospel being believed. Paul says first in verse 46, you thrust God's word aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Paul is not saying he considers them unworthy. He's saying you consider yourselves unworthy. And Pastor Tim Keller points out that this phrase is an ironic twist. The Jews found the freeness of the gospel as an offer to all people, an offer to good and bad, to religious and pagan, insulting. The gospel demands that recipients of eternal life admit that they are not worthy of it, whatever their record. But the Jews in Pisidian Antioch considered themselves too worthy to receive eternal life. One of the ironies, then, of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy or fit for the gospel is to recognize you're unworthy of it. Since the Antioch Jews considered themselves worthy of eternal life, they were not worthy. The gospel is so absolutely free that all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that is the very sticking point for many people. If we can't admit our need and unworthiness, then we cannot receive eternal life at all. And so he says, it's your fault for rejecting this. Humans must accept responsibility for rejecting the gospel And when we reject the gospel, we freely choose death. No one is forcing us to reject him. But verse 48 then explains why some people, but not others, respond in faith. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It does not say that all who believed were appointed to eternal life. But rather, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. This categorically says that if we respond positively to the gospel... It was because there was a prior appointment on our life. And no doubt this raises many questions about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But it's simply best to rest in the helpful and clear facts given here. When we reject the gospel, it's done so freely. We choose to reject it. We're not forced to do. We're responsible for what we've done. But if anyone accepts the gospel, it's because God has already been at work and our hostile hearts, to overcome our hostility so that we would believe him. Thus, after we believe, we have no one to praise but God. There's no room for pride, but only humility. It's the grace of God. And although this kind of language might make some of us uncomfortable, other ways the Bible describes becoming a Christian may make others among us uncomfortable. But again, if we're going to be biblical Christians... We need to hold to what the Bible says in its entirety about how you become a Christian. And as we've walked through Acts, we've seen a variety of ways this is described. Acts 2 says, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Acts 3 says, repent and turn back. 
Acts 4 says, many who heard the word believed. Acts 5 says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Acts 6 says, a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 9 tells us, they turned to the Lord. Acts 9 again says, God granted repentance that leads to life. And Acts 11 says, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Each of these is a different way of describing how someone becomes a Christian. And each of them is important for us understanding what it means to become a Christian. It teaches us about faith. Repentance, ongoing obedience out of faith. And in our passage, the phrase that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed has three really important applications. The first, it gives us boldness in evangelism. We can know that God has appointed some to believe, which means when we share the gospel, no matter our weakness, no matter our failure, no matter how bad we are at doing that, God can be at work and draw people to believe in him. And he will use it to bring as many as he has appointed to believe. It's not our job to discern who he's appointed and who he's not. Our job is to preach the gospel, to proclaim it, to explain it to as many as will listen, and to trust God to bring about that faith. And when we believe God is sovereignly working, we can be bold, saying even difficult things like Paul does, trusting that God will be at work. Second, this gives us humility before others. There was a time in my life where I would have skated right across a verse like this. And I would have assumed that the difference between me and an unbeliever was my faith. And what that led me to do was look down for people not being logical enough, smart enough to believe. However, if the reason I or you believe is ultimately because God has first overcome our hostility, And this should make us humble before other people because the difference between us has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God's grace. It's not about what we've done, but what Christ has done for us. This is why there is, again, no room for pride before the cross. Or as Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, it's of grace that no man should boast. And third, this gives us confidence in our salvation. If our salvation ultimately rests first on me choosing to believe, then I would rightly be concerned about my faith wavering, that my faith would grow weak and fail. But if the reason we first believe is because God is doing a work in our heart so that we would believe, which is what God says he did in this passage, and God has promised that he will bring to completion what he started, which he has, then we can rest secure in the fact that our salvation rests not on the quality of our faith, not how well we work through our doubts, but in the faithfulness of God. What a relief to our souls. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I would plead with you, since some choose death freely while those who are appointed to eternal life believe, pray. Pray that God would work in the hearts of those who don't believe, that he might soften their hearts, open their hearts to believe and trust the gospel. And then boldly speak the gospel to them. Tell them of their need for a savior, trusting that God will work. And then humbly recognize that you're no better than anyone else, but you have been saved by grace. And then rejoice in that grace because you have been saved, not of your own doing, but by what he has done and you will be kept by his grace to the very end. Because the good news of the gospel 
is that Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to those who believe. Promises, again, <coughs> to send a king. Promises to send a savior. Promise to forgive. The promise to justify. The promise to hold fast his saints all the way until he comes back. And so as we conclude our time together, I want to invite us to reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word. And like always, perhaps these questions will help you reflect on that and even be a good launching point for conversations with your family, your small group, or other members of the church throughout the week. So what relationships do you need and hope to ask God to bring restoration? Believe he can do it. Do you believe and trust God's word and all that it teaches and all that it promises? Are you eager to hear his word and receive it in faith? How does the faithfulness of God to fulfill all his promises in Christ encourage you to trust him? How does God, knowing God is drawing people to himself, encourage you to be bold in speaking the gospel to non-believers? And then one more that's not on your handout, you might want to write it down if it's helpful to you. Is how does God's grace in saving you give you a joyful confidence that he will sustain you through your falls and failures? Let's take some time to consider God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that from eternity past and into eternity future, you have been working to redeem a people for yourself, for the glory of your name. You've been doing this not by our work, but by your work for us in Christ. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to see that and believe that and have hope then that you will keep us Give us confidence in our position before you as people who've been forgiven and justified. And that out of what you have done for us in Christ, you would then lead us to be bold in our proclamation of this gospel to other people who desperately need your mercy, trusting you to do a work in their hearts as you have done in ours. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.